Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Owen Fendrick. He is the founder of Advanced Hiring Systems. We're going to be talking about possibly the single most important function of any manager. It's hiring the best people. Alan helps sales-driven companies gain a distinctly unfair competitive advantage by attracting and securing the services of the top three salespeople, their 3% of salespeople in their industry. We're going to be tackling questions like, is it possible to beat the 80-20 rule? Do people really want to work nowadays? Uh, how do we drive behavior through the application of a well-thought-through structured compensation plan? Because how often does compensation drive unwanted, unintended behaviors? Alan has a view that the compensation plan is the most leverageable tool within a VP's arsenal to drive behavior and performance. We may get into a discussion about coaching around which one has more leverage, but we're going to look at the question, you know, does, can training overcome a bad hire? Again, we're probably going to end up in a little argument over that one. And we're going to look at ways to identify, are you polishing turds and bricks? You know, the, the reality is you can't do that and sustain your business without creating massive headaches and management problems. So, Alan, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So, would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your history so that they've got context? Sure. I've been a uh, serial entrepreneur, oh, I don't know, a long, long, long time. Forever. Forever. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And even when I was a salesperson, I always considered myself an entrepreneur. I always thought of myself as having my own business, that I didn't have to do any of the operational details. All I had to do was build my business, which was finding clients and keeping them on, on board. I was fortunate enough to have a brilliant idea in uh, .com, pre-internet. And uh, ended up with 200 salespeople, team of 200 salespeople, and quickly realized, I actually had a, a coach who was a CPA, and he was looking at my numbers and kept saying, you know, that if you could fix this 80-20 rule, if you could fix the fact that 20% of your salespeople were generating 80% of your business, fix your turnover, that you would have a monstrously profitable business that you could then sell. So I followed a CPA's advice, which generally is not my strategy. I usually fight my <laughs> CPA. <laughs> and uh, we did build a very profitable business. We sold the company. I retired for six weeks uh, <laughs> and re realized it was a bad life plan to, uh, to retire. So here I am doing what it is I like to do, which is uh, working with, with companies and talking about business problems. I think generally people like you and I will end up in a kitchen knife incident if we retire. <laughs> um, that was about yeah, it. <laughs> I, I, I want to build on your point, though. I, I think salespeople who do not think of themselves as a personal services corporation selling their expertise for money then have a real problem because they don't think like an owner. They don't, uh, they don't turn up as the equal of the prospect. And that's certainly a problem that I've seen. Let's dig a little bit into what really makes a phenomenal salesperson, because I, th I think that there are a lot of received wisdoms who are, which aren't wise. You end up with an awful lot of people who they may be successful at hitting quota, but you don't build the long-term sustainable business. So I'd love your take on what you consider to be the elite. Well, you know, in truth, there are a number of criteria that you have to look at to identify who's the ideal salesperson for your industry, whether it's B2B, B2C, whether it's uh, whether you're providing leads or whether the salesperson actually has to go out and create a relationship and then and then serve that prospect until they become a, a client or a customer, and then also deal size. So it really depends on what you're selling, who you're selling it to, you know, and the structure of the sales process. That's obviously very fair. But l let me ask you this. Uh, are you, do, do you see common themes in terms of values, attitudes, beliefs, habits? Absolutely so. Absolutely so. I think that selling is, is, uh, is, is intuitive. I think that 
good salespeople pop out of their mother's wombs and have a certain, you know, they have <laughs> an ability to. I think you know. this one. <laughs> I have a hundred and eighty degree opposite view. Okay. There is no one pops out their mother's womb ready to sell. It's a fired skill. You have an aptitude. Yes. You, you have an aptitude for it. And it's it's like genes, you know, if you switch them on, that, you know, certain conditions or certain behaviors that are exhibited or characteristics. And I think, because I've worked with people who were desperately poor at their job, but they really wanted it. And I've helped them go from, you know, 12% a quota, 20% a quota to 240 in six months. Talking about um, values then. You're talking about yeah. values. And I agree. I'm, I'm I, talking about motivation. Yes. I think. What, you know, yeah. personal interest and values. What do they get out of yeah. bed for in the morning? I think one of the criticisms of using profiles to identify the best candidates is that oftentimes, you know, we start with DISC or whatever, uh, you know, Myers-Briggs or whatever, you know, whatever the company is doing, but neglecting identifying the applicant's values is a huge black hole. You, We start with what do they get out of bed for in the morning first? What are their motivators? What drives them? And good salespeople, you know, we're, <laughs> you know, we're a shallow lot, uh, you know, and we don't, uh, you know, we don't wake up in the morning, open our eyes and say, you know, how can I save the whales or, or, or you know, or how can I, you know, how can I prevent global warming? I mean, it's not that we're blind to other issues, but a, a good salesperson's primary values are either power or money. These are they're what uh, what we would call you know high practicals. So you said earlier that you know you've worked with salespeople who didn't seem to have all the you know the makeup of a good salesperson, but they wanted to make money. Actually, in all of, in both of those cases, I was thinking of then uh, what they actually wanted was to be successful in the role. Because they they loved the company, they loved the customers, but they just weren't cutting it, and they didn't really want to go anywhere else because it was convenient. It was it, it was a great place for them to fulfill their life ambitions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one one of the struggles uh, very often is the drive to find people who are so money motivated. But what they forget is at the end of the day, keeping customers. And having them come back and spend time and time again is way more profitable than just going out and hunting new ones. Sure. And I think some of the nobility of selling has been lost because selling, you know, I've, I've, I've subscribed to Simon Bowen's view. Selling should be the most noble thing you do in your business because your job is to help people facilitate the right decision. And I think we've become way too transactional. And I think salespeople are often too distant from the implications of buying from you because they don't think, well, after they bought, who's the poor bugger has to live with it? Will it work? <laughs> and I think far too many are just too transactional. I would agree. And it certainly depends on the structure of the, you know, of the sales, sales and marketing process, how the sales manager, the VP sales, whoever, you know, whoever is the architect of the process. One of the, you know, one of the things that we, teach our clients is that whoever sold that deal ought to have a role in maintaining a relationship with that sales. After all, they fell in love, or if you will, I mean, I don't know if we, but they really liked that salesperson. They trusted yeah. them and they bought from them. And I think it's very important to provide some in the, once again, in the compensation strategy, to provide some incentive for the salesperson to maintain a relationship with those that they've recruited, if you will, to join the company. So, well, it's yeah. the recruitment process selling. You, you should never compromise on recruitment, either in sales or management or customers or partners. If you do, you just create a management problem. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. One of the... Uh, well, I guess we'll get to compensation strategy in a bit. But one of the things I really like in a good comp plan is some kind of residual income built over time to... Go ahead. Well, because I'm with you. I, th I think um, you should compensate salespeople significantly for the third renewal. Yes. 
I think they should get compensated significantly when the customer reports back that they have achieved the outcome they intended when they made the investment. I think in certainly in SaaS, when certain consumption and uh, utilization levels are achieved, and when we get a a case study with documented return on investment. And I think the team should be compensated, not just the salesperson, because whilst the salesperson is the captain of the sale, there are lots of other people who contributed to it. And if you want discretionary effort from them, then make them feel like there's a real reason for them to do it. I totally agree. I totally agree. There's, there's, uh, and you'll find very, very few compensation strategies that do that. <laughs> I, I've never come across one unless I've written it. My clients, we, te- <laughs> we you know, we teach them. Listen, we're going to help you, and this is all we do. I mean, we don't. We're really not. We're not sales trainers, and we're not sales manager consultants. That's not what we do. We help them get the right salesperson, but in getting that right salesperson. How do we attract the right salesperson? We build a comp strategy that has residual income mm-hmm. so that the A, it it cuts turnover radically. If you've got 100,000 coming in next quarter for just staying in the job, you're not moving. That's right. That's right. If And I understand it because I was a sales manager. There's nothing worse than salespeople that are drinking from the trough of, you know, of renewals and never going out and and finding new business. That's a terrible thing. Mm. But, but if a salesperson, uh, if your top sales performers are, are uh, receiving 30% of their income from renewals and 70% from new business development, and Mm. you create a a comp strategy that does that, that's the sweet spot. You're going to have turnover. Every sales department is going to have some turnover, but hope, but, but ideally you're going to get rid of the, the ones who are, you shouldn't have ever hired to begin with. Well, th- this opens up some really, really interesting possibilities because if you start thinking about the kind of behavior you want to drive, then some of the things that I've been thinking about, and I haven't yet put them into action, but what about if the compensation was intended to drive certain types of strategic behavior and uh, you want to drive tactical behavior, like um, if you self-generate, you get a certain level. If the company um, generates the leads, you get a different uh, level of comp. If you do it through referral, you get a higher level. Because we know this data on this is really interesting. Prospects who are referred convert three times higher than cold. They spend two and a half times as much on the initial order. They tend to buy three times as frequently, and they refer four times as often. So one of those is much more attractive to me, but the best is a hot sale, with, which actually involves the least amount of effort. And it's through the cultivation of relationships with adjacent partners who pull you in without any friction. You borrow their credibility, and then they hand deliver you to someone with whom they already have an intimate business relationship, and you borrow their trust and credibility. Now, to me, that's a much more elegant and valuable sale because my profit is through the roof. My cost of sale is right down. Sales cycle length, much shorter and the higher predictability. So I haven't yet put those schemes into place, but I'd love your thoughts. You know, I totally agree. I mean, it's, uh, the data is there. Uh, those of us that, uh, spend half of our half of our uh, waking lives uh, reading and, and uh, reading books on, on sales development. It's the data is certainly there. And that's why, that's why a comp plan that's just thrown together doesn't get what you're looking for. Do you reckon that part of the problem is there's too much doing and way too much thinking going on in management and leadership? You know, the turnover level among, um, you know, among sales leaders is, uh, is, is, is way too high. And everybody's afraid uh, that there's someone waiting in the wings to replace them and to get their high paying sales management jobs. That's for sure. I'm an old guy. So uh, back when, uh, back, well, more than <laughs> you, uh, uh, back, uh, you know, there was uh, back when I 
was really first started in business, there was a book written called The Peter Principle, and it was a bestseller. And <laughs> you know, and and so what happens oftentimes is the sale, the best salesperson becomes named the sales director, as you would call it, or the sales manager, or the vice president of sales. And that's a, you know, when we talk about personality styles, and we talk about the things that we're we're best at. Uh, you know, salespeople and sales managers are management is sitting work. Management is thinking work. Management is planning work. Selling, on the other hand, is kind of doing it work. You have to do, but actually, in my experience, the best sellers are real thinkers. They're well read, they're diversely aware, they have deep business understanding. And they are real thinkers that, I mean, I, I have a view and it's probably uh, heresy. I subscribe to Carl von Clausewitz template for hiring. You hire highly intelligent, lazy people, minimum effort, minimum loss of life because he used to hire Prussian officers. And my favorite type of salesperson is the one who is always asking, well, what if? And they're finding ways to do less but better on purpose. You know, I would agree. I mean, I, I think uh, one of the questions that I like to ask in interviews is what books, you know, what, what books have you read? And uh, that, that answers, that'll help get you to two answers. Number one, are they coachable? Yep. Will they listen? Are they open to new ideas? And, you know, number two, I mean, are they just, are they, are they aware of the changes, the rat? I mean, I could not have imagined business today when I first started my business, I mean, it's so radically different and, you know, salespeople that don't read, that aren't staying on top of trend. And, and it doesn't only have to be business books. I mean, it can, you know, history's, you know, behavioral economics. Sure. Absolutely. But, I mean, all of that stuff, you should, you have to read widely um, so that you've got range. And that's part of the problem. Cause I think so many salespeople are very narrow and they think that they're in business to sell their product. But they forget no one buys their product. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know me, you know, what I really want is a server. I've waited my entire life. It's my ambition. They don't. There's a reason behind it. In the same way that you buy a hotel room uh, or you buy a car or you buy hemorrhoid cream. You don't want the hemorrhoid cream. You want the hemorrhoids to go away so that you're not in pain anymore. (laughs) No, it's obvious. As say, if it's obvious, if you think about it. <laughs> Tell me this, because one of the things that I used to be a headhunter, and I remember one occasion, I mean, this wasn't uh, an isolated incident, but this one really pissed me off. I was recruiting for one of the big four consultancies, and they were really difficult positions. I mean, they were like hen's teeth, these people. And I, I was putting them through And I got a phone call five minutes after the interview was due to start saying, can you fax across the CV? What do you mean fax across the CV? You're meant to be in there, you fucking idiot. And I was so angry because this candidate had taken me about four months to pinpoint, identify and get there because he was doing well, had no reason to do anything else. And this clown turns up unprepared. His entire preparation is just ripping the thing off the fax machine and the 30-second walk to the interview room. And he's about to spend the price of a mortgage just to hire this guy. And if he gets it wrong, it's 35 to 125 times his salary. Shocking. Yeah. Which touches on another, another pet peeve of mine, and that is not preparing for the interview. I mean, can you imagine? And not having a, an interview strategy <laughs> that makes sense. One of the, I'll tell you one of my tricks to 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 uh to, to interviewing never be satisfied with less than three separate interviews with a candidate because here's what happens the first interview is a throwaway you're just going to find out whether they can sell you and the second interview to a great extent is much the same thing but by the third interview you have the psychological state of rapport and now you can start to find out you can set things of value and they'll start to, by the third interview, I've had clients that have said, you, 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 you have no idea what this guy told me about his background, about his love life, about his everything. Yeah. The third interview is where you have a friend and now you're having a conversation to determine whether this is the real, the real applicant. So what, what, what I like to do is uh, it, what we teach, what we coach our clients is 
two 30 minute interviews. Don't make overly these overly long. I mean, we focus strictly on sales hiring. We don't, you know, we don't help companies hire VP sales. We don't help. Ours is strictly on the, the seller. It's easier for me to say this than perhaps other coaches that are teaching hiring or HR professionals, but two short 30 minute interviews that should be scripted, including questions, as I say, like, you know, what books are you reading? And, you know, what's your view of the sales role? And, you know, the big, you know, big questions that you can get some, uh, some sense for, but by that third interview, you can circle back and ask her, ask really pointed questions that are very specific to the role that your organization needs this seller to fill. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with you. I think then you know, two one-hour crappy interviews where you touch the surface and never go deep is utter waste of time and money. Um, I have a, um, a four, well, a couple of steps at the pre-interview stage. So we run the ad, then have them write a message to me that makes me want to respond. If they can't control their written communication, then that's a black mark. The next thing is once they've left that written message, if it's enough to want me to take them through to the next stage, then I have them leave a voicemail that makes me want to call them back. No limit to the number of voicemails, but I don't tell them that because I want to see if they have tenacity and they really want it. But if they've got a terrible telephone line, I'm going to know that. Uh, And if they ramble, that's a kiss of death because they don't know how to use the, the basic tool. Then we interview them. The first interview, we tell them what the offer is and we make sure that they agree that they will they would accept it if they were offered the job at the end of interview four. And then the first interview is basically, I want to see how they sell. So we do the preamble. We tell them the structure so there are no surprises. We commit that we will always give them a yes or a no decision at the end of each interview so no one's left hanging. We expect a yes or a no decision from them as well because only people who make decisions get other people to make decisions. So I'm looking for people who can make a decision. And then I say, over to you, because they're not expecting that. And as a result of that, I can see one of three things. Do they freeze or run their mouth under pressure? If they don't do either of those things, have they got a plan? That would be my gold standard. That would put them right at the top of the pile. Have they done a pre-call plan of how they want to control the interview? And if they haven't, how well do they think on their feet and under pressure? But now they've got a red flag raised because they didn't come with a plan. And it, you know, half a percent do. So that's one in 200. So don't hold your breath, folks. Okay. If they make it through that, then we commission them to do two days worth of paid research because this is the job. I want them to understand their marketplace and I don't care about their presentation skills. So what I do now is I have them analyze a marketplace for strategic trends, threats, and opportunities for the next 18 to 24 months in a specific vertical we want to sell to and they may be familiar or have an interest in. So you're already tailoring it. So if they're successful, they've got the research in place. I've just saved myself two days of payroll work. Then they come back, they present that. And then we do a series of role plays where we give feedback and have do the same role play again, that tests for coachability. Then we'll do also dig deep. I'm looking for habit. I'm interested in a prospecting habit, an organization habit, a, a growing account habit. So I, you know, I want someone who's a farmer with a gun. I'm not interested in a sniper who does drive-by shootings and only ever turns up for the renewal. So I'm really interested in looking for that stuff. And we do these three paid assignments. So assignment one is the strategic trends and threats. The second one is mapping a competitor. I want their inside leg measurement. I want to know who their kids are, what pets they have. I want to know everything about the competition. I want the analysis of their position, their market, their customers, their reputation, glass door, you name it. And again, a bit more role play, more digging into their history, really interested in their ability to think and adapt. I'm interested in their attitudes, beliefs, and values, and I'm really interested in their habit because that's what they'll do again repeatedly without having to put my boot on their neck. And then the final interview is a prospect mapping account exercise. So they map the entire prospect account. We'll tell them the kind of roles that we're interested in prospecting with. I want them to have done the inside leg measurement of all of them. I want them to have stalked them on social media, whatever they have to do, connect with them to see if they can get an engagement with them. If they can build a pipeline before they've even started, as far as I'm concerned, that shows a bit of chutzpah. 
Sure. Yeah. And then we make the offer on the f- uh, fourth interview for a yes or a no and nothing in between. Your thoughts? Thanks. I think it's a great strategy and similar to what we call the FST intelligence interview process. FST. We call it for FST, the FST interview, which stands for fact scrub and truth interview. We actually do have a fourth interview in our toolkit, but what we find with most clients is that they don't have the uh, the sitsis. <laughs> they don't know how to wait long enough to get to that fourth interview. So we've shaved it back. But our original our original interview strategies we called our four part interview strategies. So yes, absolutely. Okay. You, that, well, that's re- a relief to hear. I mean, <laughs> what's really interesting is how much the candidates enjoy it, even when they get rejected, and we're getting referrals from candidates who've been rejected because they're too junior, but they could, you know, they, they may be good bench candidate. You're probably not right for this role. Keep you on the bench. And by the way, who do you know who's the best salesperson? Um, and we're getting referrals off it, which is amazing because it's, I mean, <laughs> no spend. <laughs> um, okay. So let's have a think for a moment about how leadership needs to treat and value the recruitment process. Because I've seen so many tech companies just go on a recruitment spree and they just put bodies in seats and they don't see, they don't live by the philosophy better no breath than bad breath in a sales position. They compromise and that then creates a whole spiral of violence down, which then moves into customer success and you create all sorts of problems. So what what kind of conversations are you having to have with leadership so they really understand the critical importance and value of hiring well? I would say it's uh, you know 75% of 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 what we do is 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 helping leaders to understand that the recruitment process is not cheeks in the seats. I like Aaron Ross's stuff pretty much but I I was uh, I, I I think prior to our call I kind of badmouthed him a bit because one of the interview interviews that he quoted said, you know, we expect to lose 80% of our sales hires, you know, and it becomes, you know, hiring sales cattle. How do you expect to build a sales team with a philosophy that's, you know, throwing, <laughs> you know. This that, is, yeah. Alan, this is symptomatic of sales leadership. What they hang on to in terms of, Focusing on the cold market rather than the hot. They spend time and money training people how to make cold calls, open doors, but they do nothing around the middle of the funnel. And as a result, you end up with this constipated funnel, all these deals slipping. Uh, forecasting is just a fiction. And they're, you know, they're, they're basing all of their strategic decisions as a board on this forecast because that's the money they're expecting to have in. And it's just you know, ludicrous. So that what, what I'm seeing is leadership hanging on to lazy thinking and what, uh, attachment to what made them successful back in the 80s and 90s, which right. there's no relation to the environment, which the you know, millennials and Gen Z salespeople are living through. That's right. As I say, I mean, as I said earlier, it, I could not have imagined that the, the sales environment today would be what it is today. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when I, when I entered sales, the uh, level of competition is, yeah. you know, is, is, you know, it's 10 X, 20 X, what it was years ago. That revolving door issue is really critical though, because that speaks to the culture of sales leadership. They think it's okay to have a 15% churn rate or a 10% churn rate. 15% means you lose half of your customers and have to replace them every three years. How is that delivering shareholder value? They believe that you should double down on your effort in cold calling. So make more dials, spam more people, infect more people's experience on the internet with more shit adverts that deliver no value and interrupt them. And they play the game as if it's okay to churn and burn 80%. But imagine you ran your finance department that way and you only collected 20% of the revenue that was due. Or you ran your health and safety team and sure. 80% of the time people got injured and died. Right. Or your or your product failed 80% of the time and, and, and only delivered 20% of the time. It's for sure. It is a monstrous. I can tell you as a, a you know, as a company advanced hiring, we've been very, very fortunate 
because we get clients, we keep them for for years and years and years. We don't we're not out, we're not out looking for lots of new clients because we're kind of fat, dumb, and happy in that our our clients stick around. They you know I you know I I open my inbox on a Monday and I've got three clients saying, hey, we're you know we're getting ready uh, again. Let's you know let's let's crank this thing up. And what's ironic too is that in the social environment, it's so much easier than ever before. I mean, gosh, what does it take? You know, a quick telephone call, a CR. We have a CRM today. We have the tools to remind us to do this. You say that, but the problem is, even with CRM and all the sales enablement tools and Martech and all those things are meant to fill the pipeline. What they seem to have done is sacrifice effectiveness for efficiency. So they just do more stuff that doesn't work. I remember speaking to one company last year. They spent $500,000 a year. And I think there were something like 24 different MarTech and sales tech technologies. They generated $120 million in pipeline, MQLs. Sales closed $1.2 million of that with a team of 12. Now, this is another enormous area where I think there's real value in trying and digging to understand how the salesperson perceives themselves as part of the continuum in the customer's journey and how they need to play nicely with marketing and with CS. Because I I think that's really been missed. And there seems to be a lot of intentional, deliberate internal competition and structural tension. And that that has to be eliminated. Absolutely. It just disturbs the customer's experience. It's no way to build a company. Uh, You know, as I say, you know, you have a 15% turnover, have it to replace half your customers every year. What was really interesting, I spent the last couple of days at a conference with hoteliers and big themes were diversity, equity, and inclusion and sustainability. And they are recruitment issues now. One of them was a former VP at Adidas, and he had about 200 Gen Zs come to him at the careers event And they interrogated him about everything, their child labor, outsourcing to China, their carbon footprint and everything else. And he asked, well, at the end, he asked, how many of you uh, would uh, like to consider a career in Adidas? Out of 200, how many do you think put their hands up? All of them. Three. Three? Yeah. Because because sustainability, diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, George Floyd kicks off. (laughs) And they don't respond quickly enough. 30% of their customer base is Black and Asian. And as a result of that, only 3% of their employees. So there's this disconnect between what we say and who our customers are and how we're not really living it, because I think that authenticity is missing. And what's interesting is as a hiring manager, those values are really critical to who, who you can attract. So I'm really curious to see how dinosaurs my age are adapting to that because it's a real thing. You know, I agree with you. I need to think more clearly about it. I would, I would tell you that our strategy of a small business client that uh, we've helped them hire some strong uh, people over the last uh, over the last year. They've grown from a million to three and a half million. Small business done a good job, uh, and she asked me, you know, how do we broaden our uh, cultural basis how do we uh, how do we attract more and and frankly i'm i'm not sure that in the recruitment process that you know who whether they're white or black or you know or male or female or trans or whatever i'm not sure that that's really we used to call that discrimination when we you know yeah. <laughs> but, well, you're getting uh, positive discrimination but again i don't think that works either that's really just putting lipstick on a pig because you have to change at a cultural level. So what you're actually seeing is another human being. And part of the problem there is that you've got the, this group of prospective and uh, you know, current employees who have a very different value set. So th- this then speaks to another question that you raised when we were in the green room, which is um, around do people really want to work anymore? Because I, I think a lot of it is their values are different. And so we see them as maybe lazy or shirkers, but actually what they're looking for is the right motivation. So I'm curious about that one. You know, do people really want to work anymore? Well, I think if you select, if, you know, but I think once again, it comes back to the selection process. If you hire the wrong people, um, then 
they're not going to turn out to be good salespeople. I think that's where the problem comes in. It's not so much that people don't want to work anymore. I think it's just if you hire the wrong people because you've got a picture that you need to, you know, hire, I don't know, a class of people, then, you know, I think when you're hiring salespeople, you need to find people who match the model of the salesperson who's going to be most effective in the role that you're hiring for, that your company needs in order to grow. Okay. Let me ask you this. One thing I see, which is really lazy malpractice in my book, is cutting and pasting the same job description for the person you just fired or left for non-performance. And then you go out and you advertise and you attract someone else just as crap. So who should write the job spec? Another sore point in in my view. (laughs) Uh, I just put together a a talk on on just that, is that if you're going to ask HR to write your job description and require previous sales experience, previous industry sales experience, and select your applicants that you're going to interview by by their CVs, resumes, depending on what side of the ocean you're on, it's a huge mistake. I think that the job description needs to be, listen, most sales managers have a sales background. They certainly know how to write a compelling offer. We get involved in writing the ad I can tell you, you know, last week we had a client who was complaining, a a new client was complaining that he, you know, he used to be able to get 50 to 100 applicants. He was now getting seven or eight in a week. We rewrote the ad and he got 350 applicants in two days, turned it off. And then we sifted and then we began to sift through those, that volume, you know, there's, I don't know what. 300 million people as we speak that are on Facebook, right? It's an unprecedented. It really is the golden age yeah. in terms of our ability to be able to reach high performers. So in the old days, you wrote an ad. If you were on, you know, if you were an American company, you wrote an ad and you put, you know, you wrote, put it in your local newspaper and you got, I don't know, five or 12 applicants and you sifted through them to identify the one that you wanted. In today's age, and if you were a better, you know, if you were in the New York Times uh, Sunday Help Wanted section, maybe you got 50. Right. This is, you know, it's total democratization of sales hiring. Any company is right next to IBM and, you know, any of the Fortune 50 companies. We have the ability to be able to drive large numbers of applicants. And, you know, the ad is the initial, it's the top of the funnel, you know, unless you're using a headhunter. It's how you get your applicants. You know, in Facebook, uh, if you use Facebook, for example, you can touch people who aren't even thinking about applying for a sales job. I'd never thought of using Facebook to recruit top salespeople. Good idea. It's in their feed. Yeah. It's in everybody's, you know, it's, and don't do it the way Facebook wants you to do it, which is another, and don't use Indeed the way Indeed wants you to do it. You have to do it differently. Don't take their advice because what they want is they don't want to disrupt their audience. You know, they want to, you know, they want to push good news and smiley faces. And that's not what you're doing when you're when you're recruiting for salespeople. You're looking for the right match. One of my favorite quotes is uh, Stephen Covey. You know, is is yeah. uh, you know, is begin with the, you know, begin with the with the end in mind. And so when you go to write that ad. That ad ought to be what is what are the values and what are the things that that salespeople that you're really looking to attract? What's their end in mind? And then write your ad to address those needs. So the ad itself is first of all you got to figure out what is your what is your key what does your prime market really want, and then write that ad to them. And that's the key, which I think because most people write a generic ad. And when I, when I write copy, and again, for anyone who is thinking about writing great copy for your advertising, then I would suggest that you go and look up a guy called Mitch Sullivan, and he runs a very, very good, it's basic, but very good recruitment advertising writing course. And I followed his advice. I took the premium version, so he'd give me a bit of coaching to tweak it. And we ended up getting 450 applicants in the first week. We couldn't handle it. We've turned it off, but it's there ready and waiting again. And can, we, or, yeah, or, or they can sign up for the advanced hiring system, and which is a 
part of that is just that, because obviously you have to fill your funnel. That's what I really want to dig into as well. Recruitment is generally reactive. Uh, It's something that most managers see as a chore, an interruption to their busy real day job when it's actually the single most important thing you do as a manager. Because if you hire well, then you do away with 95% of your management problems. Now, what's really, really interesting, though, is the question about building the bench, because I see almost no managers putting any effort into that. But it's a distinct, unfair competitive advantage. Typically, how long is it taking now to fill vacancies at the level that you're putting it in? 12, 16 weeks? With notice uh, we, I don't know how long notice is uh, on your side of the pond, but you know, on our side, I would say we say that you ought to be filling a position. You could, if you do it right, and you start with us, and you start working and doing the doing the work that's necessary to help us to implement, you should be filling in. You could fill in eight to ten weeks. I would say. Now, if you built the bench and you've got four, five, six, seven candidates, you make the offer the moment you know the vacancy is coming free, they work their notice period, and now you've got two months additional selling time. Right. Now, look, if you're a sales manager, if, you're, if you have a sales team, more than three salespeople, you're in the sales recruitment business, whether you know it or not. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Absolutely. And once again, I mean, nowadays, all of these tools that we have you can do all of this without taking a lot of time. And it is a little bit of a setup, a couple of hours worth of work in the beginning, but the system will actually do that work for you. The worst time to go recruit is when you need a salesperson. Absolutely. And there's no reason for it. There's no reason for it in today's world. The problem is you never want to recruit in haste. I want to be able to put people through my recruitment process because it's reliable. And it tests for all the things that they're going to have to do. It puts them under pressure. So I know what they're going to be like when they're under pressure and they're in front of some gnarly, hairy-assed CFO who's giving them grief or procurements yelling at them for a 30% discount. I want to know I've got someone who is stable and is capable. But again, you, you so rarely have enough patience within the management layer to put the time in either to build the bench or to do a thorough recruitment process. We need a body. Just fill it with any mildly warm walking corpse. Every sales manager ought to have, in their imaginary middle drawer, they ought to have two or three candidates that they've interviewed, that they like, and that they're in touch with, and that they could drop into a role or and or build build some sort of puppy pen and, and have them setting appointments or something if you can if you can if you can do that <laughs> okay look we're, we're, we're coming close to the top of the hour tell me something talk talk to me about the blind spots that you see repeatedly being overlooked and the, you know the the knock-on ripple effect of that well I think we've talked a lot about that not recognizing that if, if you've got a good size sales team and I would say you know more than five, that you you really need to be considering an ongoing recruiting strategy. It ought to be passive. It ought to be something that you don't really have to put a lot of energy in and that you'll interview a candidate or two weekly or monthly so that you're constantly seeing good applicants coming across your desk. I always ask managers, if you could hire the salesperson of your dream and you didn't have an opening in that sales in your, you didn't perceive you had an opening right now, all seats are filled and you've got a stable sales team, which is another pet peeve. <laughs> Anybody who thinks they've got a stable sales team is realizes that there's little, little prospecting going on, little real, real account, new account uh, uh, development going on. That sounds uh, like hubris. <laughs> it's or yeah uh, that's a nice way of saying it's hubris is stupidity but but in any case having an ongoing sale and and taking and our view is that in today's world bringing it in-house creating a so that which is what our advanced hiring system is all about so that you can do it uh internally uh, and have an ongoing system that's going to actually be out there looking for good candidates a well written ad and and all those all those things that are necessary a good recruitment a good interview strategy a good strategy for determining 
uh, personality style and values before you talk to them. Been around a long time. And it used to be the way you got a job was you mailed a CV. And the best advice was to candidates was put a red paper clip on the top corner of your of your CV, because we know that that you're going to get twice as many interviews if you put a red paper clip on the top of your CV when you mail it off. Well, in today's world, if you're searching LinkedIn profiles for your next good candidate, guess what? You're just looking for the red paper clip. There's a lot more that goes into finding in, into good candidates than whether they can write it at these or whether they can have a coach having written them a good CV that gets them to the top of the pile. Identifying their values, as I say, knowing their values, understanding their personality style, making sure that you understand the kind of customers that you're selling and making sure that you've got a good match in the applicant flow that you're getting to come into your your recruitment funnel. So one area that really flabbergasts me is the amount of effort in the recruitment process that goes into picking apart the CV. It's a sales, it's a, it's a selling in print. It's a, it's a marketing document. And what I want is I want to get to the truth. I don't want the gloss. And the part of the problem that I see is so often that you know, people want the CV. It's rubbish. Their LinkedIn profile, if they're, if they're a modern seller, at least, their LinkedIn profile will give me the information I need about the jobs. What I really want is the meat and gristle that's underneath that, you know, that veneer. And I, I don't think interviewers dig anywhere near deep enough mm-hmm. because of the scarcity factor. You know, at, at the moment, um, I, I saw a study which uh, Jay McBain from Forrester referred to, and the prediction is that 70, good news for you, by the way, that 72% of employees in technology will be looking to change jobs this year. Now, you look at the disruption of the 42% in the great resignation this year. Well, can you imagine the ripple effect if that actually does uh, come true? Because every business is an IT business. Now you've got all that upheaval and disruption across your vendors and everyone's going to be suffering from it. So I wonder about the whole process of recruitment actually being a very powerful retention tool. Once again, if you hire right, it works well. If your recruitment processes, uh, if you've taken time to really develop a recruitment process, you know, when they come to us, oftentimes um, it's, as you say, you know, they've just lost a salesperson or they've just hired two duds in a row. And now they figure that they need some help. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to do it the same way that they did it before. And uh, it's no way to do it, that we can do a much better job by creating a uh, scientifically driven sales recruitment strategy, implementing it and making it a part of our business. It's pennies, you know, pennies on the dollar to, uh, to invest in a proper uh, sales recruitment system. So if, if you, one wanted to put a decent recruitment system, round numbers, what might we be looking at? Million, 100,000, 10 grand? Are, where are, where are we in that range? You know, if, if someone wanted to really think about this seriously, how much do they need to come to the table with for table stakes? I'm not talking about salary. I'm talking, I mean, you know, our fees are nominal compared to that. I mean, mm. our clients hire us for $10,000 US for a year's worth of service. That's bloody good value. Wow. So what do they get for that? They get an entire sales recruiting system. They get the ability to be able to profile every applicant that comes through the door. They get ongoing support from us. They get a, a monthly client conference call and they get my email address that I respond to within, within you know, within, within generally within the same day part, but certainly they get a coach that works with them from our team. Somebody who will play Jiminy Cricket for them. So the, again, I, I think one of the really interesting lessons I'm learning is that the better business leaders know where their onions are and they stick to them. And they bring in talent and expertise for the difficult stuff that there are experts out there who can do it a lot better. And you know, the, the stuff like recruitment is so critical it's worth the extra investment because 10 grand is nothing by comparison to what it's going to cost you just in the first quarter. 
by making the wrong hire. What people forget about spam is the price you pay of free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. Right. The, the same thing applies when you've got a shitty recruitment process. All those people talk, and you miss out on the opportunity of becoming a destination employer, which is ultimately my goal when I go into an organization, because I want people queuing up, and I want the people on the team saying this is a fabulous place to work to their best and brightest, because then I don't have to go out there and hunt. They come to me. So I'm really curious how companies' perception has changed by going from the slapdash, half-assed amateur approach to recruitment to having a really good professional structure approach. I'm not sure what you're, what you're asking. In, in terms of the perception of other candidates and you know, how that creates pipeline, does it help build the brand as the, an employer of choice? Absolutely. And it's not very difficult. If you have a system, we've sort of knocked HR to some extent here, standard HR practices. I, I think HR does a great job and they're hard workers. I do. In most organizations, there's someone who's who serves the HR role. And most HR professionals that once they get done fighting, inviting the advanced hiring system in to help them, realize that we make them look good. I'm working in partnership with my internal recruitment manager. And it's a brilliant partnership because she's on every interview. She's listening in. She's capturing the uh, the notes. I have someone to bounce and reflect off. She takes care of all the administration and I can just focus on digging out sales potential and predicting whether or not someone's going to be able to do well in my role. And that's brilliant. And I think good HR is worth their weight in gold. But I think often they've become a cheap alternative to decent legal advice because they get all the disciplinary and all that. And it's a cheap way of dealing with the contracts and all of that. But they don't really get their full um, credit because good HR is fantastic. In fact, um, Jack Welsh, interestingly enough, I'm not a big fan, but when he came into a company, the first thing he would do is look at HR. If they had a good HR keep them. If not, the first thing he would do is parachute in a top HR and they would then restructure everything. Sure. Sure. So, sure. Okay. Alan, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly, because I could talk to you for weeks. Tell me this, you, you have a golden ticket and you can go back to whisper in the ear of your idiot 23 year old self. What one choice bit of advice would you have given him? Well, at 23, I was a sales manager of a radio station in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. It's a funny question because, and I don't want to sound like, you know, I don't want to sound foolish here, but, you know, my career and my work life have been amazingly productive and, uh, and I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed every bit of it. I mean, you know, from. Okay. Let me ask a better question then. (laughs) Who were your mentors at that stage? Because uh, unless you genuinely believe you popped out of your mother's womb able to do this stuff. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no, I, I worked for small companies after having worked in a, in, a, in a large company and realized that I preferred to work in a, in a smaller organization. My first boss was a guy by the name of Mike Ludgate. And he really did, you know, he developed me as, a, as he, you know, he taught me to use my strengths. I think, you know, I've always you know, been good at creating systems, figuring out what the proper system is, and then creating a creating a system to achieve it. You know, he taught me to become a marketer and to think like a marketer, uh, even though I was a sales guy. I, uh, I, 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 on that note, I think salespeople who cannot market, you've probably got a very limited shelf life. It, it's the it's, job's changed. Yes, yes, yes. Salespeople that say they don't like marketing really don't understand what's happened between then and now. They don't understand their customers either. Yeah. That, yeah. That's really important. You've got yeah. to learn how to be a marketer and think like one. Yes. Because it, it's all part of the same process. The minute you create that friction or those disruption in the process, uh, you've just lost a bunch of customers. Marketing is the dating game for sales. Mm. <laughs> uh, uh, I didn't say that. I. That's a good quote from actually from one of my original mentors. Uh, who I was fortunate to sit at his feet, a guy by the name of Jay Abraham. Oh, I know uh, Jay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you know Jay? Well, I was one of the original uh, proteges back in uh, 
the 1980s, I guess. And he said it, and I took it to heart. I, I took it to heart. I think today anybody can be a marketer. It's, you know, think of what we have today. You know, you know, if you sit in a conversation with somebody and you say something and they'll open up their phone and do some quick research. You know, the role of sales used to be we provided the information and helped them to make a decision. Today, customers all come with all the information that they ever needed. They've done their research because Pope Google is, is, is <laughs> you know, is there to answer their questions. So, uh, so I think that the, that the role is, uh, the role of marketing and sales are, are intertwined. They're different. I mean, obviously the seller has to be the one that has to close the deal and reach around and grab the credit card and swipe it. And they have to close the deal. A seller has to be able to close and make a sale. I think marketers are oftentimes, that's not their role. That's okay. But a salesperson needs to be able to understand the market. I, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. I, I, I'm curious about the kind of things that you're reading at the moment or watching, listening to. You know, what, what, what's the stuff that's feeding your mind? Oh, I don't know. Let's see. What am I reading these days? I like to write. So uh, I'm reading a really good book about on writing by a guy by the name of, he was one of the original writers for uh, software development by the name of Gerald Weinstein or Wine Weinberg, I forget it's called the Fieldstone Method of Writing. You know, I'm reading some books on memoir writing. I'm at that point in my life where where I'm planning on writing a memoir for my grandchildren, not publicly, but just uh, just something to write uh, write to pass along. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try and maintain my relationship with my wife for 43 years. So I'm always reading up on how do women think? Uh, <laughs> and, and, well, interestingly enough, one of the best books on sales that I read years ago, and it was genuinely uh, to uh, see the psychological tie-in because I was really interested in the syntax of seduction and selling. And it's a book called The Mystery Method by Mystery, and it's all about being a pickup artist. But the syntax is identical to the sales process. Attract, make comfortable, seduce, push away, have them surrender. And that way you get no injunctions and no restraining orders. And there's no blame or recrimination. Now, the beauty of that is when you understand that actually what we need to have is a really good communication model. And almost no salespeople approach it like that because they're there to try and flog features and functions and to hit their quota. And if you if you understand how the buyer's brain is operating and what, you know, what the choreography they need looks like, actually selling to people is very straightforward. Your job is principally get the hell out of the way. Show them what they want and show them yeah. that you're going to help them get it. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. So, Alan, how can people get hold of you? Through our website, of course, advancedhiring.com. Uh, There's a button they can click and and uh, and and enter into our uh, dialogue. Really, we've built a dialogue so that they can identify whether we're someone who can help them. And that's at advancedhiring.com. They're uh, welcome to, uh, I suppose, send me an email. My email address is, is alan at advancedhiring.com, A-L-A-N at advancedhiring.com. And uh, we have uh, we have a new we have a new survey tool that will really help them to identify what kind of salespeople they ought to be looking for. It's at getclients.advancedhiring.com, and uh, the page is up at this moment, but it uh, will be, and that'll be. Is that an email? No, I get clients at advancedhiring.com. It's a All page. right, so it's the get clients tab. People are right. Looking for. Uh, get All clients. Right. No, getclients.advancedhiring.com. That's a subdomain. Subdomain. Subdomain of advancedhiring.com. Okay, I shall definitely be going on that because I'm in Good. the throes of recruiting several uh, roles at the moment. Good. And Alan, Good. this has genuinely been a delight. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. I've, I've My learned pleasure. a huge amount. Um, I have too. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, look, I'd love to have you back. And in particular, I want to have that debate around the comp plans. Because I think that really has to be out there. And pe- you know, pe- people have got to stop using the lazy compensation schemes that drive the wrong behavior. So I'd love right. to have you back on that. Right. I'd look forward to it. Thank you, Marcus. Alan Fendrick, thank you. My, thank you. Thanks, Marcus.
So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone. Tag someone who's repeatedly hired the wrong people, someone who's complaining about the quality of their salespeople, and drop Alan a line, drop me a line, either one of us, because you know, you, it's the most important thing you ever do as a manager is hire. The next thing is get the best out of the best people. So we'll leave that for another episode. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. And you can email me, marcus at laughs-laughs.com. Bye-bye.